call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse, and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. A book that is considered a classic of American literature, a book that is probably, in my own personal estimation, one of the classics that has been the least read by the high school students who are supposed to read it. That line, everybody knows, call me Ishmael. They know the name of the captain, Ahab. They know the name of the whale, Moby Dick. But there's a whole lot in this story, in this novel, that people don't know. And I guess my argument very briefly this morning is that it is because it's kind of a dull book. Now, if you are an English person, and I think there's one in the room, you just dropped your mouth. The rest of you went, yep, I got it. Uh, that may have been judgment. Let me, let me give you as, as they fix the sign, let me give you my evidence. I want to name a couple of chapters for you. Seatiology, the study of whales, of monstrous pictures of whales, of less erroneous pictures of whales, a sperm whale's head, a right whale's head, the fossil of a whale, measurement of a whale's skeleton, these are all chapters in Moby Dick. The first 80 pages are the story of a friendship, and the last 30 pages are the story of an adventure of tracking down this whale. And the 400 pages in between are descriptions from the 1830s and 40s of whales and whale hunting and getting oil out of a whale. And I mean, everything, you just, it is so hard to get through it but it's a classic. The book was even a failure when Melville wrote it. It was 20 years after his death that some literary English critics rediscovered it. And it took them years to actually get it out there so that it would be like, oh, this is a literary classic. Nobody wanted to read this thing. I have some reasons other reasons why I think so. I'm going to get to those later, but I want to read one thing about Moby Dick. There is a, if not the, most significant theme going through the book. Ahab's quest, obsession, drive to kill that white whale. Here it is in his own words. Who told thee that, cried Ahab, then pausing, I, Starbuck, I, my hearties all around, it was Moby Dick that dismasted me. Moby Dick that brought me to this dead stump I now stand on. I, I, he shouted with a terrific, loud animal sob, like that of a heart-stricken moose. I, I, it was that accursed white whale that raised me, made a poor pegging lubber of me forever and a day, then tossing both arms with merciless imprecations imprecations. He shouted out, I, I, I'll chase him round good hope, 
and round the horn and round the Norway maelstrom and around perdition's flames before I give up him. And this is what ye have shipped for, men, to chase that white whale on both sides of land and over all sides of earth till he spouts black blood and rolls fin out. What say ye, men? Will you splice hands on it now? I think ye do look brave. This is what he was about. And he would take every person on that ship with him to get that whale. And until he got his vengeance for the loss of his leg, until he murdered or killed the evil that he saw in the whale, he wouldn't give up. That's what gave his life meaning, value, what made it count. And he'd give everything to get it. I'll say it this way. Ahab will not have peace until he gets that whale. What are you chasing? What do you need to have peace? What are you looking for? To make your life count? To have value? To make your past mean something? What regrets are you still trying to fix in your life? What things are you seeking that you feel like, if I don't get this, in fact, what are you obsessed with? that you can't let go of because without it you feel like you cannot have peace, meaning, value. This morning, we get to talk about a guy who found peace. A man who can look at his life, the past and whatever is to come and say he has peace. Whatever regrets were in the past, whatever bucket list items he hadn't done yet, he can say he has peace. Where does that come from? How do we get that? How do we know our life counts and we have peace? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, please guide us today as we look in your word. Help us to understand how Simeon finds peace, that perhaps we too might find that same peace in our lives. And instead of continuing down a path that Ahab goes down, that I know many of us are on, that we might seek the right things, that we might find the right things and ultimately know peace, living lives for your kingdom. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We continue right where we left off last week. We talked about Mary and Joseph coming to the temple. Now that they are there, we pick up, and Luke kind of goes off onto another storyline for a moment in order to introduce another character that is going to be very, very central to what happens to this young couple as they come to the temple for Mary to be purified and to dedicate their special baby to Yahweh. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Um, Luke gives a pretty incredible description of this guy. But the first thing you need to see, if you've read this story, you've heard anything about this story, you've likely heard this at some point. Simeon is usually presented as a priest. The fact that Luke calls him a man and never mentions a status of clergy. Luke likes details. It, It very likely means he's just a regular dude. This is not clergy. This is not a religious leader. It's just a regular dude. Now, when I say regular, he's a pretty extraordinary regular dude. There's some descriptions about him that are, first, he is called righteous. Um, The word is used almost exclusively to describe God. Noah is called righteous. Elizabeth and Zechariah are called righteous, but almost every time this word is used, it describes God, and it refers to being morally fair, just. Um, It it refers to judgments that are right and true. Um, This man is called righteous. Secondly, he's called devout. This word is only used by Luke in the New Testament, and all three times besides for this are in Acts. And they always describe Jews who are wholeheartedly following after God. So this man is righteous, he has right judgments, and he's wholeheartedly following after God. And he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Hey, this is not just a moral man. Hey, doing the right thing is important. But doing the right thing doesn't necessarily mean you know God. And sometimes doing the right thing could actually lead to legalism when it is separated from faith. This is a man who is not only righteous and devout, but he is anticipating. He's waiting on God. There's a faith to him. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation. He's waiting for Israel's hopes to be restored He's waiting for Messiah to come. He's waiting for Yahweh to return and to rescue a people that have been occupied for four centuries. And the Holy Spirit is upon him. Now, up to this point, that would be very unusual. If you read through the Old Testament, where you see the Holy Spirit most often, prophets, priests, kings, But he does not indwell the everyday believer all the time. That will not happen until Pentecost. But this regular Jewish dude has the Holy Spirit upon him. This is a special guy who is also a regular guy. Verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he sent the Lord's Christ. There's a revelation that was given to this regular Jewish dude that he would get to see the Christ before he died. And so you hit verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, all right, verse 27 is where we need to camp out. It looks like a very normal scene, like this is exactly what should have happened. 
Hey, this young couple brings their child in. They're going to dedicate him to Yahweh. And they meet this guy, and he takes this baby, and he's going to offer a blessing. Except for some background details we already have. Number one, Mary can only go into the court of the Gentiles or the court of women. That is likely not where you're going to find a faithful Jewish dude. But he's there. Now, why is he there? Because he was in the spirit. He's only there because he was led. He's at this place very specifically because the spirit led him here. And on top of that, he's not a priest. This young faithful couple, they have made a six-mile trek to get here. Six miles, okay, I, 10,000 mi- 10, steps on my Fitbit is just under six miles. It takes me all day to get it. It's not an insignificant walk. And they've come with a purpose in mind. They have come to dedicate their baby. She's going to be purified. They're going to dedicate the baby. They need a priest for that. Not some regular Jewish dude that's hanging out in the court of Gentiles or the court of women. And so when you re-look at verse 27, understand This is an interruption in the plans of Mary and Joseph. Okay, they're like, okay, we made this journey, we've got the baby, we're on our way, and here comes this dude we don't even recognize. You're in our way. This is an interruption in the normal plan. How do you feel about interruptions in your life? Anyone good with them? How do you feel about interruptions for plans in your life? How do you feel when you're doing something, you're on the road to something, you've got your strategy marked out, and something gets in the way of it? I hate interruptions. I have way too much to do. And interruptions just back those things up. Whether it's traffic, long lines at the grocery store, or yesterday when I made my way all the way up and I was the second person in line and then the card machine broke and they had to move us all. I hate interruptions. It gets in the way, and this is an interruption into what their actual plan was. It is a chance encounter by the Lord. And I want you to think with me about the things that needed to happen in order for this to happen. In order for this encounter to take place, for Mary and Joseph to meet Simeon at this moment, The things that had to happen, Simeon had to be open to hearing the Spirit. Simeon had to not only be open, but had to be listening and willing to obey the Spirit. Can I ask you, are you open? Ask it a different way. Is your schedule open to hear from the Spirit? Is there any margin in your life to hear from the Spirit? Is there any margin? I mean, I can imagine since Simeon is led by the Spirit at this point into the temple, that this probably wasn't even his plan when he woke up that morning. This wasn't exactly what he had in mind, but he's following the Spirit. Would your schedule allow for you to be rearranged? if the Spirit was calling you somewhere? Or is there such a fixation on your plans that you would never end up where he's at right now? 
Even this young couple, which I think this is kind of incredible with them, they actually don't have any supernatural, they don't say anything about their being led by the Spirit. You know what they're doing? They're just being faithful. That's all they're doing. They're just walking faithfully with the Lord, and they end up at this place. And yet when they end up with it, they don't rebel against the interruption. I am so good at that. This past Thursday, I took the car in to get the oil changed. I needed to go there, I needed to get the oil changed, then I needed to get to Costco and get the tires rotated, get them balanced, and then I needed to get back home so I could work on, yes, my sermon. And so I, I mean, I had it planned out. And in fact, I decided a way to save time is to get over to the Valvoline thing on Main Street, drop the van off, and then go walk. I can get my walking done and get my 10,000 steps while the oil is being changed. And so that's what I do, and I take off, and I'm doing my walking, and I go back into the neighborhood that's just on the north side of Main Street, and I'm walking down the street, and this street goes on, and there's got to be 10 to 15 houses on the street. There's all these driveways, and of course... As I'm walking, I see one car that is backing out, and it's going to back out right in front of me. I mean, there's all these driveways. Why this one? You've had that happen before, right? And so here I'm, and I'm thinking, all right, one, I can't stop very long, because when you stop, you can lose the active minutes. I mean, you've got to keep going a certain amount, or you don't get active minute credit. And so I'm moving along, and I'm going to show you my ageism right now. The person backing out... It's a much older lady, and I think to myself, and I apologize for this, she is not going to see me. I better stop, like, way back here, because I don't want to get hit by this lady. And she's backing out, and I'm like, come on, come on, lady. And she goes, and she gets to right here where her window's where I'm at, and guess what she does? She stops. And I'm going, come on, lady. And she goes and waves at me. And I'm like, hi, move along. Come on, I got active minutes to get. She rolls her window down. I'm like, oh, goodness. She goes, hi. Hi. She goes, you have a really nice voice. Thank you. Would you please back up? I didn't say that. She said, do you sing? No, I walk. Back up, please. And she goes, do you sing bass? I said, no, I, I don't really sing. And she said, you have a really nice voice. I hope you get to do something good with it someday. <laughs> I'm such a jerk. <laughs> and then she backs out, and I notice a halo on her head, and she, like, you know, rolls away. And, um, and I'm just walking, going, I feel a little like a jerk, and I, I, feel, I feel so encouraged. Like this little chance encounter. Um, and I can't say that happens all the time in my life, but like I didn't want to make time for it. Um, and yet I was so blessed by it. Here's the thing. You want to find meaning and purpose. You want to find peace. It's going to come through the Lord working in your life. Not all of the things that we chase, but the Lord working in your life. And, and I know this is true. Many of you right now, you believe that, but you don't see the Lord working in your life. And you wonder, 
Is it because I'm not clergy? Is it because I don't read my Bible enough? Is it because of my sin? Is it because of my past? What, what is it? Is it something about me? I want to make the suggestion that none of those things stand in the way of God working in your life. But there is something that could. You. Are you open to it? You don't have to earn this. You don't have to somehow like make God love you or you don't have to check off a bunch of boxes before he'll do it. Are you open to it? Or a different question, is your life open to it? Is your life open to God's work? Or is it so busy that you're going to walk by it every time? Are you so upset when your schedule is rocked that you wouldn't see God if he hit you with a sledgehammer? Are you so bitter or upset by the things that didn't go the way you wanted them to go that you possibly couldn't see God working in that moment? I believe God wants to work in the lives of his people. What we might call chance encounters, what we might think of as divine interruptions, except we leave the divine out. They're just interruptions in my life. I want to ask you, in your next interruption, will you pray? God, you want to do something with this? I'm here and I'm open. God, you want to make this circumstance different? I'm, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to hear and maybe to even have my plans rearranged in this moment. This Monday, we celebrate Martin Luther King. And August 28th, 1963, one of the greatest divine interruptions in history took place. A divine interruption that has undeniably changed the history of our country. You all know the speech, right? I have a dream. You all know that speech. I want to tell you something about the speech that some of you will know and some of you may not know. Here's a little background. Before that speech, AIDS told Martin Luther King not to refer to I have a dream. He had done it a couple other times in a couple different places. And this speech, because they were expecting 100,000 people, they ended up with 250,000. This speech was to change everything. And they wanted it to be more like the Gettysburg Address. And so if you go back to the very beginning of the speech, which those are not the parts that we know well, it actually has as the second paragraph, um, I just lost it. Five score, and I mean, it's five score years ago, and it talks about the Emancipation Proclamation. But it, but it mirrors it, because that's what they wanted. Well, the night before the speech, King goes up to his room and he told his aides this. He said, I am now going upstairs to my room to counsel with my Lord. 
I will see you tomorrow. And he went up to put the final touches on the speech. When the speech is done, there is nothing in it about I have a dream. If you go look at the original manuscript, that's not in it. 250,000 people on a balmy day in D.C. where he is the 16th speaker. You guys are concerned about my sermons going too long? (laughs) And he gets up, and he goes to the speech, and you can read the original speech, and you can kind of go down the line, and he gets to this part. Um, Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. And then... From behind him, um, Mahalia Jackson, his favorite gospel singer who had sung at this march, she shouts out, tell him about the dream, Martin. Martin keeps reading, keeps going through his speech. Go back to the slums and ghettos of, the northern, of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation will be changed. And again from behind him, she says, tell him about the dream. He continues, let us not wallow in the valley of despair, and then something incredible happens. He takes the speech, and he shifts it over to the left side of the podium. Clarence Jones, who is his speechwriter, saw it happen and he says to a person next to him, those, to, those people don't know it yet, talking about the, the crowd out there, but they're about to go to church. And Luther stands up, and he get, the, the way that Jones describes it is he now looks like a Baptist preacher. And the entire section that is so memorable is extemporaneous. I have a dream. There is an interruption in front of 250,000 people and he takes it. And in the interruption, he changes the course of history for America. God wants to work in the lives of his people. Sometimes for the sake of his people, sometimes for the way that that interruption could change somebody else or something else, God has done amazing things when his people were willing to change their plans. Even in front of 250,000 people, God wants to work. Will we, as his people, be open? That was the first step. Here's the second and final thing that happens with Simeon. Look back at your text. Verse 28. He took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And I want to come back to verse 29. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Um, That word prepared is used in the Gospels to describe the Passover getting ready. When they're getting the Passover ready, they're preparing it. And Simeon says in this blessing, you've prepared, you've constructed, you've readied salvation, but all people will see it. And he'll describe all people in this way. 
a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, that those who walk in darkness right now when it comes to Yahweh, they're going to have a light shined. They're going to see their rescue. The Gentiles will get to know salvation and, a gl and glory to your people Israel, that Messiah will come out of this little group of people because of all the promises that God had started making back with Abraham and moving forward. They will be the people. It'll be their glory. I get to see this now. You're going to get to see this now. And because of it, jump back to verse 29. You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I want to know what it is about this moment that does that for Simeon. Because um, I just, I want you to think about how profound that is. I can now depart in peace. Right? Departing there is dying. And, and I want you to think about this. What would it take for you to find out today that you are dying and for you to go, I have peace? Think about all of the regrets you might have. All the things you wish you would have done. All the ways you spent your life that you would think, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have done this, or I wish I wouldn't have that. I'm not ready yet. I had a conversation with a man who was diagnosed with a terminal disease. And on the day of the diagnosis, this is what he told me in tears. There's so many things I haven't done. There's so many things I want to do. He was scared and he saw all of the stuff that was there. And here is a man who in a moment says, I can depart in peace. No matter what my past is, no matter how long I still have to live, because we don't know how old he is. We assume he's older, but Luke doesn't tell us his age. But this is the defining moment in his life that all things could be seen through. All of his past and all of his future. I can depart in peace. How does that happen? Like, how do you get to that point like that? What does he see? I'll tell you what he doesn't see. He does not see Rome overthrown. He does not see sin removed from Israel. He does not see all the nations flocking to Zion, as the Old Testament promises will happen when Yahweh returns. He doesn't see joy return to Israel. He does not see the powerful Messiah stomped down on the earth. Instead, he sees a less than two-month-old little baby that is handed to him. Now just think about that. This little frail child is handed to him. He's got to hold the baby's neck up because the baby doesn't quite have the strength yet to do that. The baby can see between 8 and 12 inches the baby's arms still have that kind of jerking motion that's really cute, but they can somehow get their hand to their mouth. The baby may have smiled at his mommy and his daddy, but it's probably because he passed gas. That, he's looking at this frail little child, and he says, now I can depart in peace. What does he see? How does that happen? How do you get to that point from this? He got there the same way that all of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 got to where they were. 
Hebrews chapter 11 is the faith chapter. Go read it sometime. Just read the whole chapter where it talks about all of these people that gave everything they have and yet they didn't see the final results. They didn't see what they believed in. I'll tell you what happens in that moment, and it's going to sound trite, it's gonna sound cliche, it's gonna sound like that's not really an answer, it's gonna sound like, come on, give me something here. In that moment, Simeon believes in the reality of the kingdom of God far more than he believes in anything else. In that moment, everything in his life is seen through the kingdom. Everything is seen through, oh my goodness, it is real. Yahweh is coming back to his people. Yahweh is gonna make all things right. Yahweh is fulfilling his promises. Yahweh is bringing salvation. Yahweh is doing all of these things that we believed in. Yahweh is here. Now we've had these moments. I want you to think about a time when maybe it was a child like in our case, who was diagnosed with cancer and we didn't know if the child would live and the child lived. Can I tell you that when that happened, we reevaluated our lives? There were things we thought that mattered, all of a sudden they didn't and other things did. Have you ever had a near-death experience and you walked away from it going, there are things that I thought were really important and they aren't nearly as important as I thought they were because it gave you a perspective on life? We've had moments where we've been given perspective. We've had moments where God has done something. We have this phrase where we say, that's a first world problem. Have you ever said that or thought it or heard somebody else say it and say, yeah, I know what you mean. It's like you get a flat tire and you're like, oh, the world is ending. No, there are people starving looking for their next meal and you have a granola bar in the car where you have a flat tire. This is not world ending. It's maybe inconvenient and not good for your schedule, but it's not world ending. And sometimes that First world perspective is not to say we don't have problems. We do. It's to give us a perspective. Simeon in this baby and in the fulfillment of this promise is getting a faith perspective on life. So that all of a sudden, it just all goes to the kingdom. Whatever I've done in the past, good or bad, whatever I'm going to do, whatever I'm looking for in terms of affirmation or reputation, whatever I'm looking for in terms of forgiveness, whatever I'm trying to make up for, whatever bucket list items I may have had left, none of it ultimately matters compared to the kingdom because the kingdom is all encompassing and it takes over and invades all of his life to where he can go in that moment. I can depart in peace, in shalom. I'm in peace with my life because of him. What if the entire point is, it's not about us, but about him, and we actually believed that? We just had a conference for our diocese, and a, uh, a gentleman got up and he spoke, gave a very good message. Um, and, and he and I have some similarities. Um, he is 42. I am 43. He's a pastor. I'm a pastor. He's good looking. <laughs> there are also some not similarities. Um, he 
just built a $17 million church. We meet in an elementary school. He has 10,000 members in his church. We have 120. He's published a dozen books. I'm published in the footnote of a faith Bible article. He preaches and teaches all over the world. I think I've taught in three churches in the DFW area. Right here, I feel like a total failure. I am never going to match up to that. I'm too far along. I can't even fathom it. And I think about it and I go, I haven't published books. I've tried writing them, but I'm not there. And and I'm not speaking all over and getting these speaking engagements. And and the church isn't growing fast enough. And and it costs so much in Frisco that, like, how are we ever going to get land and build a church? And, and, And I just, I feel like a failure. If this is about the kingdom, I'm jumping for joy. This guy is reaching souls. This guy's building the kingdom. This guy is changing lives all over the world for the kingdom. Does it matter that I don't get the glory? Not at all. It's about the kingdom, it's not about me. And you know what? This is the flock that God has given me right now. Loving this 120 people in his name for his glory. And it doesn't matter if it gets to 125 or drops down to 110 or whatever happens. If it's about the kingdom, not about me, then success and failure and value and meaning and all of it doesn't matter personally It only matters for him. What if we could see our whole life that way? What if we could come to that point to go, Lord, I have peace in you. I have peace in your kingdom. I mean, there aren't all these great things that are always gonna happen to me, and that is really okay. It may be hard, but it doesn't have to be personal. It may be challenging, but it doesn't have to mean I'm a bad person or I have failed or I have no worth. And even more than that, I don't have to look to you to make me have value. I look to him because it's his kingdom. That is where Simeon's at. And it all happens because of a chance divine interruption in life where he is open to the spirit and he just follows through and then God works. And he goes, the kingdom is real. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom is real.
For me, the hardest part about reading Moby Dick was not the three months that it took me to read all 530-something pages. It's the end. I want to just read you two paragraphs. This is Ahab. Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale, to the last grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. Sink all coffins and all hearses to one common pool. And since neither can be mine, let me then tow to pieces while still chasing thee, thou tied to thee, thou damned whale. Thus I give up the spear. Last words you hear from Ahab. And this is the paragraph that follows. The harpoon darted. And it's a special harpoon that he had made and dipped in the blood of three of his harpooners that he could get the whale with. Because other harpoons had failed before him. This one would get what he longed for so desperately. The harpoon darted. The stricken whale flew forward. With igniting velocity, the line ran through the grooves, ran foul. Ahab stooped to clear it. He did clear it. But the flying turn caught him round the neck and voicelessly, as Turkish mutes bowstring their victim, he was shot out of the boat ere the crew knew he was gone. And it's done! 530 pages of watching this man try and kill a whale, and at the very end, he finally throws a harpoon, it goes around his neck, and he's done in a paragraph. And that's it! I wanted to burn the book! I mean, come on, dudes. They don't know like Marvel superheroes or something where it's always good at the end. But that is exactly what you can expect the end of your life to be as long as you're going to pursue that whale. As long as you're going to look for value and worth from people, from what you accomplish, from the things you chase, from the things you think you need, as long as you continue to look for it there, you will always... Have that as the end, because you were made for something greater. You were made for the kingdom of God, and it's the only place we will ever find true peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, save us from Ahab's syndrome, or make us people of the kingdom who do, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Lord, give us faith where we don't have it, which is so often. By your spirit and in your grace, give us the faith to trust you, to be, to know that the kingdom is where true value and meaning and worth and peace is actually found. Lord, lead us to yourself and away from all the things that break our hearts, that break our spirits, that take us away from the truth of our maker. Lead us to yourself. In Jesus' holy and precious name we ask it. Amen.